Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. It's good to see everyone this morning. Appreciate you all coming our way. We have lots of visitors this morning again. We um, are glad to have you here. You are honored guests. We appreciate you coming here and uh, worshiping with us this morning. This group, uh, this congregation, this church, this Lord's body, we seek to serve God as we find instruction in the pages of the New Testament. That is our aim and our responsibility to do so, and we gather here on this first day of the week as we do every first day of the week, and do those things that we find commanded to us in the first, in the, in the New Testament. And so we are glad that you are a part of our worship this morning. I, I joke about this, I even joked about it in Bible class this morning, about my list of favorite passages, that ever-growing list of favorite passages. Well, Acts chapter 17 is probably at the top of that list still, um, when we get over to verse 22, and Paul has this, this wonderful um, sermon, really, that he gives here at, at the Areopagus. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but... Um, it is indeed one of my favorite passages of Scripture because Paul, in what he does, is he sketches uh, Jehovah. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And the reason I use the word sketch is because Paul has a limited amount of time, and he knows that. He is in Athens when he gives this, uh, this speech, this sermon, and he's standing before a lot of very uh, well-educated men. And these men, as we'll find out in just a minute, they were interested in hearing what he said, but they were only interested in hearing what he said because they were interested in hearing things that were new. They wanted to hear the latest and greatest. And so I think we, we, we see in Paul how he felt that he, he had a moment. And he had a moment to, to, to sketch, to, to tell them about Jehovah, about the God that he serves. And so we can gain a lot from that, and that's what we'll do this morning, is we'll look to what Paul has to say there about the God that he serves. And it's a God that he doesn't worship in ignorance, but a God that he worships in full knowledge. Chapter 17 opens, and Paul is, goes to Thessalonica. This is amidst the, his second missionary journey. And he goes to Thessalonica, and he's preaching and teaching about uh, Jesus Christ. He's preaching and teaching the gospel. And the, you see there in verse 5, the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men in the marketplace formed a mob and, and set the city in an uproar. And, and so we see these Jews are, are stirring up trouble and, and trying to silence Paul. And so they, he leaves Thessalonica. He winds up in Berea. We have that um, passage there about those Bereans in verse 11, more noble-minded that those in Thessalonica and searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true that Paul was teaching. So there he is again. He's in Berea now, and he's, and he's teaching and preaching the word. And those from Thessalonica come to Berea, and they again try to stir up trouble, and they wind up running Paul out of Berea. And so that's the occasion that he winds up being in Athens, and he has some time there in Athens. If you look there at verse 15, he says, Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And look in verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, 
as he was beholding the city full of idols. So Paul has, if you will, a little bit of downtime. But he's, he's going around in Athens and he's seeing all these idols and all these things that these, that these men and women are worshiping. And it sparks in him this, this idea, this, this, this thought, as, as scriptures reveal to us there. And, he, and he's wondering about all these things. In verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So as we'll see from his sermon here in the beginning of verse 22, he's... It seems he's using the idea about these idols to, to kick off these, these discussions and these, uh, these thoughts and these words that he might say about the God that he serves. Verse 19, it says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And I mentioned this a minute ago, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul was, he was preaching and teaching this, and they, they thought it unique. They thought they wanted to hear it, but probably just for the reasons they hadn't heard it before. They were interested in hearing something new. So they invited Paul to go to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, you might say in your Bible, or in a heading there in your Bible about Mars Hill. So they take him there, and this is where they would meet, and they would talk about things. I guess it might be the modern-day coffee shop, right? Or the, or the men gather, and they might talk about things of the day. But they wanted to bring Paul there, and they wanted him to talk about these things that he was, that he was saying. So Paul has that opportunity. And I, I, again, this is, this is me surmising this. I feel that Paul realizes he's got... A shot at this may not be very long because they're not going to want to hear it after this one time. So I, I need to tell them about God. I need to sketch for them the idea of Jehovah, about God, the all-powerful, the awesome, the creator, God. So he begins there in verse 22, and that's exactly what he does. So here in verse 22, he gives this this sermon on Mars Hill. And he talks about these things about God. He talks about God as a creator. Great place to start, as we'll see here in just a moment. Why not begin there? Why not begin with the idea that God has created all this that you see around you? So that's where Paul begins. And remember, he's in the midst of all this idolatry there in Athens, of these uh, educated men and all the idols that they have uh, constructed and all this worship that they have and this polytheistic society in which he's, in which he's in, in, involved in. And he tells them that the God that he serves is the true God. He's not an idol. Idols are actually made by men, and we're going to look at this in a moment, Made by men, they fashion an idol and then they bow down to it. Now how silly is that? Paul makes the point that the God that I serve is not an idol. He's not served by human hands. He's not, he's not uh, created by man. He is the creator. He is the true God. He's not an idol. And the God that I serve is the God of men. He has determined the boundaries of their habitation 
And from one man, he has created all nations. And he is instrumental in their lives. So the God that he serves is the God of men. And the God that he serves is a righteous judge. He is the one that has created all things. And he is the one that judges all things. So here's the basic outline of this this short sermon that Paul will give here on on Mars Hill. So let's take a look at each one of these and, and see what we might find out. First of all, as we mentioned there, he starts by saying that God is the creator. Look there in verse, let's, let's read beginning verse 22 through verse 24. It says there, And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So, we'll stop there for just a moment and see... Paul is, is, is commending, if you will, his crowd, saying, you're very religious in all respects. Obviously, you have something in, within you that causes you to want to worship because you've made all these idols and the things that you might worship. And he's going to use that little, that little tidbit there to talk about the God that he serves. So let's keep that in the back of our mind. He's recognizing that they're religious. They're looking for something higher than themselves. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done this. And otherwise, they wouldn't have... Uh, made an inscription to an unknown God. They're covering all their bases, right? There's, there's a God out there we may not even know. We're going to have this altar, and this is to an unknown God. So make sure we have all the gods covered. And then he look what he says there in verse 23, the end of verse 23. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. While he commended them on being religious, he's condemning them for being ignorant and what they are worshiping. And that's the springboard that he uses. This I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now that's a bold statement, isn't it? We've seen pictures of the ruins of Athens and ancient Rome and see those the great buildings and things that, that were built in antiquity and And to to stand there amidst that and to say that God does not dwell in these things that you've created, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Throughout Scripture, God is identified as the Creator. In Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the Bible, what does it tell us? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Setting out in Scripture... The first verse of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. What better place than to start an argument for God as the creator? God's created all these things. God has created heaven, the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 19 and verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the firmament shows his handiwork. In Romans 1 and verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and the Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Look around you. This proves that there's a God. God is a creator. And this explains who He is. I I struggle in, in, 
And this is why I, I, I use the idea of sketching God. This is, he's got a few moments. We've got just a few moments to talk about God. How much can, time can we spend on what all God is? But to think about God as the creator. He's the one that created all this. Men of Areopagus, in the Areopagus here, everything that you see around you, this, God created this. And that's the God that I'm proclaiming to you. Not out of ignorance, not an unknown God, but a God of the Bible, a God I can read about, a God I can know and understand. That's the God that I proclaim to you, God the Creator. Amidst all the idolatry, there is uh, the need for Paul to say, God is not an idol. This is the true God. He is the God that I serve. Let's pick back up in our reading. We read there, let's read again verse 24. The God who has made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. What better argument is there against idolatry? And to understand that he is the Lord of the heaven and the earth. That he does not dwell in man-made places. Now, we're in our Wednesday night class, we're in the section of, uh, we're studying the, the, the whole entire Bible, the main storyline through the Bible, and we're right now in the, the Exodus period where they have constructed the tabernacle and they've ordained the priests and they're about to get ready to move towards Kadesh Barnea and into the promised land. So when we say that God does not dwell in man-made places, well, what about the tabernacle? What about the temple that would follow after that? Well, those are the commandments that God has given to them. God has, has said, I will come there and I will meet with you. But he doesn't dwell there. God doesn't dwell in these things that are made by man's hands. Now, he commanded them to make those things. Let's not lose sight of that. But that's not where God dwells. How can the creator of all the universe dwell in a little tent? I think it was 10 by 10, the most holy place. God doesn't dwell in man-made places. Nor is he even served by man's hands. Now, again, we've been talking about all the sacrifices and all the ritual that the, the Arianic priesthood had to go through in performing the sacrifices. That's man's hand serving God, right? Well, it gives us a clue about that, doesn't it? Yes, it was ordained by God. Yes, it was set forth by God. And this is what he wanted. But he wanted them, the people's hearts to be in their sacrifices. We've made the point a couple of times about, you know, some of those sacrifices, the people themselves brought that cow into the, into the courtyard and put their hand upon his head and killed that cow, that bull. They did that. And then the priest would take over after that. In that we see that God wants our hands to get dirty. He wants us to understand the price for sin. And so even though there are things that we do in the physical world, if our heart's not in it, we're not serving God. And it's our heart that God is interested in. He's not served by man's hands. He doesn't need, how can the creator of the earth and the heavens, how can we do anything 
to, to, to serve God with our own hands. We do them out of obedience to God and respect to him. Not that he needs us to. I want to point something out here. Set a marker there at, at Acts 17. We're going to come back. But look over in Isaiah chapter 46 for just a moment. This idea about idolatry and how silly it is is written so well here in Isaiah, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 46. It says, To whom, this is uh, God speaking, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and waste silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it and set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. You see how the point here is being made, how silly idolatry is. You take gold and silver and you give it to a, a gold or a silversmith and they make you an idol and you take it and you carry it around and you set it up and you worship it. When we get through worshiping, you tear it down, you move it off and set it up somewhere else. It can't hear you. It can't hear your distress. It can't do anything for you. Why? Because you've made it. Or the hands of the smith have made it. How silly is that? Rather, he's talking about the one that created everything. Paul's talking about the God that created everything. That's something worthy of worship. Not something that you've made with your own hands, but the God that created everything. He's worthy of worship. This God that Paul worships, that he is encouraging these men of Athens to worship, is the God of men. Pick back up in our reading now in verse 26. It says, And he had made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are, we are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. See that goldsmith, that silversmith? We ought not to think that God is like that. He's the God of men. From one man he's made all the nations and set their boundaries. And it's a very important point for us to understand about this. From one man, he made all the nations. There's theories out there, and there are things uh, put forth about the beginnings of, uh, of mankind. What we read in the Bible story there in, in Genesis, the first few chapters there about God creating Adam, and then creating Eve, and then from them children came, and from them all the nations grew. That's what Paul's talking about. From one man, he's made all nations. There's theories out there that, well, God made some other people over here, and they interacted and married, and that's how the population sprung up. Paul makes it clear. From one man, he's made all nations. 
Very important for us to understand that. Set the boundaries of their habitation. Determine the times in, in which they will, they, will, they will operate, they will exist. That's a powerful God. Can a carved image, can Aaron's calf, can, could he do that? No. God can do that. And in all this, he's made mankind, he's made each and every one of us in such a way that we would seek him out. Whatever that is, whatever that's inside of us, he's made us in such a way that we will seek him out. Remember I said how Paul began this with saying, you men of Athens are very religious in all respects. Guess what he's pointing to here? He's pointing to the fact that, yes, God made us in such a way that we would seek after him. We would seek that higher power. We would understand inherently that there is a creator. Not that we are a matter of happenstance, that we've just crawled out of the primordial ooze and happened to be formed together into these thinking, rational beings. No. God created us from one man. And we've created, he created us in such a way that we would seek him out. And guess what? We can find him. It says there, verse 27, they should seek God and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So we're made in such a way that we are going to look for God. We're going to grope for him. We're going to reach for him. And we're going to find him because he's not far from each one of us. How far is a father from his children? We exist in him. We are indeed his children. Paul points it out. He says there, uh, verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Again, recognizing the teachings amongst themselves. We are his offspring. Well, guess what? We are. Paul says that, verse 29. Being then that we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think like the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. We are. We are God's children. In him we exist. Genesis, the record there says that we are made in his image. We seek after God and we can find him. Therefore, since we are made in his image, we cannot create him. We cannot create an idol or set up a God for ourselves and think that that is going to be our God. See how idolatry is so silly? How quickly it falls apart? We can't create God. He's created us. Therefore, we ought to seek after him, and we will find him. Finally, in this discourse, Paul has the, Paul has the preacher moment, or he's got to bring it home and tell them about something that's that's out there on the horizon. Verse 30, beginning. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, that, uh, to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in a righteous man, uh, in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So you see, Paul's laid out an argument. He's a creator. He's not an idol. He's the true God. He's the God of men, including everyone. 
and he's a judge. And there's a judgment coming. But we can take, take uh, stock in, have our faith in, take comfort in the fact that he's a righteous judge. It says there that he has overlooked the past times of disobedience. Flip back a couple pages to chapter 14. Beginning in verse 14 here, Paul's speaking. He says, but when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 16 is our key here. And in generations gone, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. So there was a time when God focused in on the children of Israel and led them in their spiritual journey. And all the shortcomings and all the falling of the ways, but that was God leading his children. And the rest of the nations, all the, the Gentiles, he's overlooked that. But now he's saying that time is over. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now calling all men to repent. He's calling all men to account now. He's overlooked this time of ignorance and this time of uh, disobedience to God. Now he's calling all men everywhere to repent. And how is he doing that? He's doing that through the gospel. He's doing that by men going out and preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ and telling the world that there is a man whom God sent, who he put his words in his mouth, he spoke those words, he told people about the kingdom that was coming, and then he gave his life so that that kingdom could come. And he's calling all men everywhere to that message. And he set a time, and he set a man through whom which he will judge everyone. In Romans 14 and verse 12 says, So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. So there's a time coming that we have to give ourselves, to give an account of ourselves to God. And that's the point that Paul is making. He's overlooked the times of ignorance. Which means no one is with excuse. No one has an excuse. We are all called to God. Whether or not we answer the call is within ourselves. Will you answer the call? Because there are going to come a time when we have to give an account for ourselves. Standing before God. And he has affirmed this by raising Jesus from the dead. All that that he has, that Paul has sketched out here for us. Leading up to that salvation through Jesus Christ, he says he's affirmed this by raising Jesus from the dead. And that's the gospel message that's going out. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. And so we're calling for all men everywhere to repent. So what's the result? Verse 32 and 33. It says, now when they heard, the, uh, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. 
But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, uh, and some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with him, with them. So the result is there were some that sneered, some that scoffed about this idea of man being raised from the dead. And this is, this is how your, your law is going to go forth. This is how your belief system is going to be. It's based on the man being raised from the dead. Some were intrigued. Yeah, hey, we'll hear you again about this, Paul. This has piqued our interest enough that we'll hear you again concerning these matters. Remember, these were people who wanted to hear the new things. What's, what's, going, what's new in thought? What's new in knowledge? That's what we want to hear. So some were at least intrigued to, to hear Paul again at some point. But then some believed, two here by name. Some believed in this message. Some believed what Paul had to say about the God that he serves. God the Creator. The true God, not an idol. The God of men and the righteous judge that God is. So what reaction do you have at hearing about God and the resurrected Christ? Remember, we set the stage. Paul has a, has a little window here that he can tell these people about the God that he serves. We've looked at that this morning. What's your reaction to it? Do you believe God the Creator? Created all things? He's not an idol. He's not something that we've made with our own hands and then set it up and worship it. That's not God. He's created the, the gold and the silver by which you've made this thing. He's the God of us. He's the God of mankind. He's made us in such a way that, that we'll seek after Him. He hasn't made us estranged from Him. He's made us in a way that we will seek after Him. That we will search to know more about God. And Paul says He is not far from each one of us. He's there. We can find Him and we can grow closer to Him. But understand that also that He has set up a judgment through a man named Jesus Christ. And that man he raised from the dead to prove that he is God the Creator, God the Almighty, Jehovah. So we have the same set of circumstances here. We can sneer at what we've heard. We can, yeah, yeah that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll hear you again on that. Or we can believe in Jehovah and his son, Jesus the Christ. We offer an invitation this morning as we always do. If you're not a child of God, if you haven't been baptized, if you have not come into the kingdom, I would encourage you to study more, to make that change in your life that you need to make and follow after God. If as a child of God you've stumbled and you need the prayers of the congregation, Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.